Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to A Thinking with me, James Harding. Cancel culture. Good grief. Cancel culture is a quick way to a long argument. It's one of those subjects that's ill-defined and easily seized upon. One that fires up fierce disagreements with little time taken to check the factual details. Come to think of it, it's the kind of subject that's made for a thinking. The open discussion at the heart of our newsroom here at Tortoise. One that's designed to get to a clearer sense of what to think. Because as likely as not, you might already have a strong view about J.K. Rowling's tweets about trans women, the Twitter storm it unleashed, and those in the film and publishing industry that refused to work with her. You might have seen the letter from 150-plus of the literary great and good in Harper's magazine last year talking about a culture that intimidates freedom of speech and thought. You may well have a view on the defenestration of James Bennett by his own colleagues at the New York Times after the paper ran an op-ed by a US senator calling for the National Guard to be brought out onto the US city streets amid the Black Lives Matter protests last summer. But a thinking is intended to cut through that. It's intended to be a forum for civilized disagreement, a place where we can try to figure out what we think of these contested, complicated issues. And in this series of thinkings, we're trying to make sense of the battle for truth. We revisit one story in the news to learn what it tells us. Today, it is in fact the news story of a newsroom itself. Suzanne Moore and The Guardian, cancel culture and the new dynamics of protest. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hey, Amber, how are you? Very well, thanks. Is that Matt? Yes, Matt. It is, yes. Oh, how are you? Hello, Ash. Hey, how are you? Hi, Suze. Hi, everybody. As you're going to hear in this thinking, there are some circles you just can't square. Cancel culture does wrest the mic from the powerful, and as such, it is an effective modern tool in the much-needed arsenal of dissent and protest. But there is, I think you'll hear, too great a cost in inhibiting honest debate. It's borne most by those who aren't in power, by those who most need the rights to freedom of speech. And you'll hear too that most of the time, cancel culture is just a lazy shorthand. 
It's not a culture. And frankly, people aren't really being cancelled. But it is still a front line in the battle for truth. In a moment, I'm going to ask my colleague, Nimo Omer, to just spell out exactly what happened. What were the stepping stones to Suzanne Moore's leaving The Guardian? And then in a moment, Suzanne Moore is going to join us. So too is Ash Sarkar, who's a journalist and activist and an editor at Navara Media. Um, are, are we allowed to do swearing? Because I will tie, I'll clean up my act, if not. As you know, uh, you can't take Matt Dancona anywhere. So yes, of course you're allowed to... <laughs> of course you're allowed to do swearing. Preferably generally rather than at people in particular, Ash, but yes. Amber Rudd, the former British Home Secretary, is here. She is also famous for many other things, uh, not least being cancelled from an event at Oxford University. It is very possible, although not certain, that at 6.30, Amber Rudd has to go and speak at an event of Cambridge University. Although on past performance, Amber, it could well be that come six, you discover that you're free for the rest of the, the evening. <laughs> okay, let's see. And my colleague and fellow editor, Matt Dancona, who's the author of Post-Truth and the author of the book Identity, Ignorance and Innovation. Suzanne, of course, you're here. You could tell us in your own words what happened at The Guardian, or to use that terrible Oprah phrase, tell us your truth. But I'm going to start by asking my colleague, Nimo Omer, to give us as close as she can to a dispassionate account of the story. Nimo, what happened at The Guardian? Okay, so I think to really understand what happened with Suzanne Moore, we need to kind of take a step back and look at the larger context of what was going on within the Guardian newsroom for like a few years, since 2018, basically. The Guardian publishes an editorial that addresses the Gender Recognition Act. It basically discusses how the rights of trans people are potentially in collision with cis women's rights. And they discuss how effectively um, the rights of trans women and the Gender Recognition Act and the changes to it not only stand in opposition to the rights of cis women, but they actually endanger them. And so it, it was not met well. Within The Guardian or amongst Guardian readers? Within The Guardian and right. also just generally within the public. Quickly after, an op-ed is written in The Guardian US that directly addresses this editorial. They say that this editorial is promoting transphobic views. Right. And they actually say that it is hindering their journalism. Now trans people won't come forward and talk to them about their stories, why would they want to talk to journalists who work at a newspaper that is putting out transphobic content? That's the backdrop to Suzanne Moore. The next summer, 2019, two trans employees resign. Fast forward to March 2020, the column comes out. So in the column, which is titled, Women Must Have the Right to Organise, We Will Not Be Silenced. And she writes... Sex is not a feeling. What we are seeing here is the collision, basically, between the discussion about chromosomal sex versus, you know, uh, psychological and social identity and, and, and this really large discussion, this really big discussion is being had within this column. A lot of people are seeing it as being harmful. Another uh, trans employee resigns and then the letter is circulated. So 338 people write... It's not. I mean, I've looked at the letter. It's not a. It's not directly about Suzanne Moore's column, although it does raise the, the their disquiet about anti-trans sentiments being published in the Guardian. And then, what happens? It's not that Suzanne Moore is kind of sacked or cancelled. What happens then? 
Six months later, effectively, Suzanne Moore resigns. It's really important to note that the CEO and the editor-in-chief of The Guardian back their decision to publish the column, and they backed Suzanne Moore. Mm-hmm. And they actually also reprimanded the, um, the Guardian staff that had signed the letter. Mm-hmm. So they had said that you are not supposed to go out and publicly attack your colleagues, not on social media, not on email, not in meetings. It's not acceptable. So, so, so the brilliant thing about Nimo, thank you. The brilliant thing about this is that, of course, one of the things you've done is shown us that often what's taken as Exhibit A of cancel culture, mm-hmm. Suzanne Moore leaving the Guardian, was not actually a cancellation at all. But it was, I suppose, an example of how one particular view that was deemed to be uh, unwelcome, unhelpful. Um, it, it then generates a huge level of opposition and how that opposition can engineer, you know, the departure or contribute to the departure of uh, as famed and as well-known a columnist as, as Suzanne, who, as it happens, is here. Suzanne, I'm alive to the fact that there's an irony in that we've told your story in a conversation about the battle for truth. Let's just check first. Have we got it more or less true? Do you think that's a fair, a fair account of what happened? Probably about 95% fair, yes, I think so. I just disagree that I don't believe trans identity exists. Of course, it exists. I believe it does. That would be the only point of contention there. The reason that we're focused on it, and and I know there are many people who've got different views on cancel culture, is it was such a moment, Suzanne. You know, you'll be too sort of modest to say, but you're, you're one of the columnists that certainly the left, the feminist left, would prize above all. And the idea of The Guardian losing you is really a significant moment for the paper. And it says something very significant about the culture on the left, the culture amongst progressives, that a letter like that, that was clearly hostile to what you'd written, could be signed by so many colleagues at the paper. And that's what I suppose we're really interested in here. It's not so much an argument about trans, it's an argument about freedom to express different points of view around feminism and trans. And and what do you understand happened? I agree with you completely that actually a lot of this is not particularly around the trans issue. And some of it is actually just a commercial decision, which was that Guardian America and Guardian Britain have different views on this issue. And there was a lot of pressure from Guardian America. They didn't like the editorial that, that was referred to earlier. And Guardian America want to take their New York, the New York Times readers. And to do that, they want what they consider to be younger readers. And I think the shock, the shock of it really was that this argument, well, obviously it was about something that I had written, but I am not the only woman at The Guardian who felt like that. Lots of, I had huge internal support. So it was like this strange dynamic that was going on within the organisation, just as there had been, as you can imagine, over whether the paper supported Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the people who did and the people who didn't. And I sort of feel that some of this was slightly fallout from that, actually, because um, the left, having not just lost, but lost so but. <laughs> so incredibly badly, decides then to really sort of drill down on an issue which I think is really affects a smaller number of people and is also is very resolvable. I don't feel this is a kind of Israel-Palestine, oh, my God, this is going to go on for years. I think that we are sort of on the same side 
bridges can be built and I think that the conflict can be sorted out. What saddens me is that on all these issues that have sort of broken the left, whether it's not the denial around anti-Semitism or this issue on trans, if the left doesn't talk about these difficult issues and have the fight amongst itself, the right will take it. It's really important to go to difficult places as a journalist. And it's really okay to disagree. And what was shocking to me about the letter was, I mean, I've worked in for the left-wing press. I mean, I started off on Marxism today for the Communist Party. Um, I've worked at the Mail on Sunday. I have had stand-up brows with colleagues, you know, where we almost killed each other and sat beside each other the next day. What I hate about this kind of if we're going to use the word cancel culture, is that it is done via social media and it is done in this kind of anonymous way and it's very performative. Now I have to keep reading about myself. That what, Won't she shut up about being cancelled? She's, she's got a newspaper column, won't she? I was never cancelled. I was never silenced. But certainly it was made clear to me that, and to many other women on the paper actually, that this view that biological sex was real was not going to be really backed up by the editors and as a journalist you do feel that you want your kind of editor's support when the going gets tough and uh, that's I think I don't I didn't feel I had it really I mean she took me out for lunch and they all patted me on the head and they didn't want me to go because obviously that didn't look good but um, at the same time every time I tried to write anything else around that subject um no one was keen. And um, the, but the argument, you know, just because you don't let people, you know, just because you don't let columnists write what they want to write, the argument doesn't go away, does it? So, Suzanne, thank you. I'm going to come back in a sec. But Ash, what do you, what do you make of this? And, and do you understand why, you know, I grew up on the newsroom of the FT, you know, the truth is there were fair few people who also come actually out of Marxism today. There were fair few Marxists on the newsroom floor of the FT and they disagreed passionately with almost every um, op-ed, let alone every leader column in the FT. But part of the culture of a newsroom was that you were, it was a place that was wel- that welcomed unwelcome views. And so w- w- what do you make of the response to what Suzanne wrote? I think we've got to also take a step back and examine the framing of our own conversation here. So, for mm. instance, James, you said that really this isn't a debate about trans issues. This is a conversation about the culture around feminism and the discussion of the trans issue. Now, mm-hmm. how many transgender people are part of this conversation right now? I'm going to go with zero. So that idea tells you a bit about how we are defining who is being silenced and who isn't, right? Mm -hmm. There's a whole group of people who are excluded from this conversation already. So we're kind of playing into, I think, the turbo marginalization of the group who are being spoken of by framing what's going on here, which is a contested, polarizing issue as itself one of silencing. Because I'm hearing this, this, you know, really generous and nuanced account from Suzanne. And I'm thinking, okay, so what happened was that Guardian staffers wrote what looked to me like a very cordial letter, not a hostile one, but one which was impassioned and forthright about the areas of dissent with what they thought was the Guardian editorial line. Didn't mention Suzanne by name. And also you had the support and continuing employment from your editor, to me, that seems like actually a really good way of handling a contested, 
painful and polarizing issue. So I'm unsure about how this gets socked into a conversation about freedom of speech and the suppression of freedom of speech, because what I'm seeing here is a lot of people exercising their freedom of speech, regardless of whether they're in a columnist role or not. One of the things that I saw from a different Guardian columnist as a response to the letter about the Guardian's editorial line on transgender people was, if you disagree, don't write a letter, write a column. Well, not all of us are fucking columnists. Some of us do the admin, some of us do the typing, some of us do the photocopying. And I believe that those people are just as entitled to express themselves, to organize politically, and to engage with the values and public-facing direction of their organization. And Ash, I suppose, just to understand your point, the, the, the issue that you raise about who's involved in this conversation, who's involved in all of those broader conversations, I think there's a question here, which is, you can understand, I think no one's disputing that there are trans people who passionately disagree with what Suzanne Moore wrote and that there are many people who support those trans people passionately disagreeing. The question is whether or not in that disagreement it should be the case that a newspaper or newsroom inhibits someone from writing those things because a large number of people don't like them or don't don't agree with them, even if there's a majority of those people, which in this case it wasn't, but even if it were, what's the right or the role of someone to have a very unpopular view and what's the balance and the trade-offs between the impact of that point of view, right? And I do take seriously the impact that that point of view has and the importance of being able to, to air it. Culture changes... I think rarely through agreement and often through polarization, conflict, and then winning over the undecided. That's how political culture changes. And so I believe quite fiercely in the right to contest how platforms are used and to organize around that. I think that one of the most useful myths for people in power is to insist that all politics is, is the polite sharing of opinions. It's never been about that. It's always Mm -hmm. been something of a blood sport. And so how you change that culture is through criticism. It is through saying, hey, you know what, maybe we've heard enough about climate denialism for for one day or whatever else it is. And that's how norms change over time. That's how norms changed around homophobia, around reporting on the AIDS crisis, around how people talked about people of colour. And that's not to say as some people do, which is here's the arc of history, you know, hop on or hop off and, you know, you're going to be shamed for it. It's saying, well, this is how things moved along. And what I find really strange about the freedom of speech argument is that you can disagree with everything apart from who gets the platform, which then to me says, well, look, you can express your opinion, but you can never contest your place within the hierarchy. Who's at the top of the trees at the top of the tree with the well-paid contract and who's at the bottom tweeting on their break from their gig economy job is at the bottom and those things are fixed. No, I believe passionately in everyone's right to participate in this conversation. Ash, I'm going to come back to you in a second, but I want to hear from Amber Rudd. Amber, I'm, I'm really aware of or begin to become aware of what the problem is here. It's maybe that there's not too much information in the world and I can't figure out what I think, or just that I'm so easily impressed by the last argument that I heard that I'm suddenly just sort of pendulum swinging one way from the, to the next. So now I think to myself, actually, just taking on Ash's point of view, isn't that perfectly fair? The reason you get bumped from being able to speak at Oxford University is there are people who understandably 
disagree with your or your government's view on Windrush and they're protesting and they're saying, look, we don't want you on stage. We don't want you to have the microphone. And that's a version of freedom of expression in much the same way that your ability to stand on that stage and speak into that microphone is a form of freedom of expression. Such a lazy way of interpreting freedom of expression. People like me, at least particularly at that time, don't need a platform. You know, we can get a platform. I went there to try and have a debate, and I knew it was going to be quite interesting. I couldn't help feeling it was just very cowardly of them and a little bit rude to just cancel at the last minute. I think it was a misjudgment from their point of view. I mean, this is the practical thing of why bother to invite somebody in in order to cancel them five minutes before it starts. But I also think there's... um, there's an issue here for, for students. It's, you know, I went to listen to extraordinary people who I was never going to agree with when I was at university. The idea of saying, no, I don't like this Marxist or conservative politician, therefore, having invited them, we're not going to turn up, we're going to cancel them. It seems like something that might happen in an authoritarian country, not a country where we try to encourage freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of access to people. Yeah, Amber, just to push on this point about hierarchy, Isn't there an issue which is, look, for years, politicians have shown up at university campuses and there are a dozen people standing out in the drizzle with placards and shouting things and and that's protest. And then you go in and you get to to have your say in a sort of more convivial, you know, warmer, drier atmosphere. And actually, this is a form of protest that says, no, actually standing outside with the placards is not enough. We, we, We really want to challenge the hierarchy of power. We found a more effective way of doing it. And that's making life uncomfortable for politicians. As you say, it's not cancelling you. It's not inhibiting you from having your say in other environments. But it is registering a message. Well, for them, it clearly was registering a message. And uh, they were forced to write an apology, I think, by the vice chancellor of the university, which basically said, we're sorry, we didn't realise you were a racist. So I'm not sure there was much point to that. I'm not sure that there was much point to anything that they did, really. If they really wanted to challenge me, it's no longer just placards outside. They could have come in and we could have had a pretty lively conversation. And they might have enjoyed it, actually. And we might both have learned something. Matt, what do you make of all this? I think it is uh, very nuanced and and deserves this kind of nuanced treatment. I think what bothers me is, and this speaks a bit to what Ash was saying, is, you know, ultimately this is, this comes down to the realm of the sale as well as to who gets a platform. And the, the difficulty is that it now seems to be the case that to assert the reality of biological sex and the issues that have arisen because of the reality of biological sex is to invite the charge of being transphobic. It's perfectly possible for biological sex and a self-identified notion of gender identity to coexist. But what you can't have, in my view, is a situation where it is impossible to talk about biological sex without suddenly uh, being you know, labelled a person of, you know, of, of low morals and unacceptable politics. Actually, this is having real world con- consequences. So we're talking about Twitter a lot. Helen Stanilan, who's a software engineer, was banned from Twitter for simply asking if male-bodied people should be allowed to undress in front of women and girls in changing rooms. Now, that, to me, is a legitimate question. There are many answers to it, but the idea that just posing that question is enough to get you banned from you know, arguably the most important 
social media platform in the world is amazing. I'm alive to Ash's point, which is actually, if you're going to have a real debate about trans, have a trans person in the room who's going to say, okay, here's the, here's, here's my case. But, but I just want to, I just want to take a different example, right? Which is, um, uh, and, and I know Suzanne is now getting bundled into lots of different people who've been left, ousted, departed, you know, uh, cancelled in different ways. But if you take a different example in 2020, if you take the case of James Bennett, who was the op-ed editor at the New York Times, the New York Times ran an op-ed by Tom Cotton, a US senator, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, uh, unrest in American cities, and a US senator asks for an armed response on the streets of US cities. And in a way that is similar but different to the case of The Guardian, a host of New York Times journalists argue that this opinion should not be voiced as an opinion in the op-ed page of The New York Times. Uh, and it caused so much disquiet amongst New York Times journalists that James Bennett resigns. What do you make within these are two great liberal organizations, The Guardian and The New York Times, about the sense that the progressive movement has become illiberal in its views? Well, what I, what I think is gets down to the, the definitional question we haven't really yet addressed, which is, what is cancel culture? And it is a culture. It is a culture. It is a way of thinking. It is a mode of behavior. It's a way of approaching the world. And culture shifts and royals and twists and changes its trajectory over time for good or nil. And there's absolutely no doubt that we are now shifting from a position where, if you take the end of the Cold War, progressives were hugely identified with free speech movements, with people like Vasav Havel, the, the fight against the fatwa and Salman Rushdie, the sort of protection of dissidents in Eastern Europe and elsewhere in the totalitarian and autocratic world, to a position now where there is a, a predisposition to, if not silence, to drive to the margins views that you don't like. And so most debates, actually, far too much of the debate is taken up with a kind of audit at the beginning of who, who's allowed to take part. And often, you know, I'm sorry to mention trans again, but it is, it is the locus fascus. It's huge numbers of people are told that they have no rights to speak on issues which affect them. You know, it's, it's really important that. Let, let's give ourselves a definition of what we're talking about, right? Ashley, why don't you go first? When we're talking about cancel culture, and Suzanne said she wasn't really cancelled, I get that. What, what are we talking about? What, is, what, is, what do you think cancel culture is? I've got, I've got three definitions of cancel culture. Definition one, cancel culture is the fastest way of getting on the Today programme. <laughs> definition two... Marketplace of ideas is when I tell you to shut up and cancel culture is when you tell me to shut up. Mm -hmm. And definition three is that cancel culture is a name that is given to informal processes around articulating disapproval of who gets a platform and a prominent role in public life. The, the marketplace of ideas, you telling me to shut up, me telling you to shut up, and disapproval, right? What's interesting there, in both cases, in both of your definitions, no one's actually being cancelled. You're telling me to shut up. I'm telling you to shut up. You're saying you don't like what I think or say. or you. Don't, but but it, it, it's, it's a mechanism of disapproval. It's a mechanism of dislike. It's not a mechanism necessarily of silencing. 
Well, so here's the thing is that I think that something terrible happens to language, which has emerged in a kind of lightly ironic way in the internet. And then journalists get their hands on it and flog that dead horse. (laughs) So cancelling emerged as part of African-American vernacular. And it had this kind of lightly ironic content. It was originally used for things like Taylor Swift is cancelled when Kim Kardashian uh, exposed the voice notes. It's a kind of playful idea that you can cancel people in their careers like you can your Netflix subscription. And within that is a kind of awareness that that's not possible. There's an element of spectacle of, you know, yes, there is a crowd mentality, but in its original use, there was a kind of self-ironizing content. And then what happened was, and I do think that this is why journalists shouldn't be allowed on social media. That's my most authoritarian opinion. And that's because they ruin all the good memes and they ruin all the good slang. Journalists get a hold of it. And suddenly it becomes a term, I think, to load the discussion. So we're not talking about a debate of who gets to have that prominent role in public life. We're actually saying that those who are my detractors are already illegitimate because they are trying to cancel me. Amber. I don't know whether you heard uh, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton on trans issues. It's such a generational issue. It's just extraordinary. Mm. People who who think, as Ash does, and people who think perhaps women particularly, who like me, who, as Matt put it, and Suzanne put it so brilliantly, is that we believe in both the dignity of transgender people and also uh, biological sex of women. And it's as though we're being told you can't do both. And I don't really understand that. But my, my definition is which is a bit lighthearted, which maybe I'm just not taking it seriously enough. It's like <laughs> school, it used to be someone gets sent to Coventry. It's a sort of childish response to people not liking their ideas and refusing to debate them. Well, thank goodness we have the confidence to be able to debate them sometimes, James. Sent to Coventry as being better than being sent to Jamaica. And I do think that this is relevant, actually, is about people's right to articulate disapproval of who gets to have a role in public life. The hostile environment is still a reality. And I do think it's quite central to this conversation. There's a level of self-indulgence of all of us who've got these, you know, big platforms presenting ourselves as somehow hard done by and separating that conversation away from the impact of what we've done with our platforms and what we've done with our positions in public life. And I think when it comes to the hostile environment and Windrush, I find it sticks in my throat a bit that we are having this conversation as though there's not a legitimate case to be made that after overseeing such a scandalous crime against the human rights of black British citizens, overseeing their wrongful deportation, that there might not be something legitimate in saying, you know what, maybe you don't deserve a prominent place in public life. I think there's a perfectly legitimate argument to have. Uh, Well, Ash, you didn't have to join this conversation either. Perhaps you should have cancelled me before. Uh, Ash, wait a second. I want to hear hear, hear, hear from Suzanne. I'm finding myself in and out of agreement with everything that people are saying. So, you know, I'm not perhaps the monster that people think I am. But I don't want to be melodramatic here because I know that any woman in public life, and I know Ash and I know Amber probably have experienced it. I've actually had seven years of death threats. My children have been threatened. The police have been involved because of my views on this particular issue. I mean, I'm used to death threats because you know, I'm very, very old. And <laughs> I used to get them from Combat 18, you know, and that they were they used to bother to write letters to me and, and then phone me up at home and I had a panic button. So... There's cancelling, which is 
oh, let's just have a jolly old debate. And then there's a real attempt to stop you speaking. And for me, the point at which that I did go to the police was when they were saying that my 11-year-old needed a good fisting and that they were going to do that. Okay, that could be just some idiot in their bedroom. You, you never know. You never know. You know, if the police dealt with everything like that, you know, they would never do anything else. But there is a real attempt to silence women. I'm not cancelled because, as Ash is pointing out, I have a privileged position in the hierarchy. I own my privilege. But every day I get emails from people who are doctors, nurses, teaching assistants, social workers who want to say certain things, who are uncomfortable about things that are happening in their workplace. They daren't say it. Those are the people that I feel in some ways are being cancelled, but we never know their names, you know, because they're just scared that they might be going against, say, the Stonewall advice that is given to most of the public sector or for instance you know that's a very powerful lobby group so there's two things I just I think there's sort of this silencing that isn't doesn't make newspaper headlines that but does make people think you know what I just won't speak about that thing because it's too difficult but the result of this not listening to what's really going on doesn't make that debate go away and we saw that say with Brexit you know not talking about certain things didn't didn't make them not happen, if you see what I mean. And Susanna, I suppose I just wanted to ask you about that because I think that, you know, I don't agree with Ash that the issue here is people feeling hard done by about not having their platform because you say everyone here, you know, as we're sitting here on this screen, everyone's got a way of voicing their point of view. And more than ever before, there are ways of figuring out new platforms for voicing your point of view. The question is whether or not there, there's less of a candid debate. There's more inhibition in terms of what people are willing to say. And, you know, it, you know, even in our newsroom, you know, we're, we're new and we're, we're small and we're starting up. But inside our thinkings, you're aware that on certain subjects, people are very nervous and they're not, you know, columnists or politicians. And, and I just wondered whether or not we're struggling to deal with something, just pick up on Amber's point from earlier on, that's generational or in fact more sort of technology-based, which is Nimmo, for example, has grown up with a level of communication online that I just didn't. And I wonder whether or not we're struggling, people like you and me, Suzanne, just given age, just struggling to deal with the fact that certain internet behaviours are moving into the real world. And, you know, and I, and I really appreciate what Ash said about journalists like me misunderstanding the sort of where cancelling came from. But I wonder whether we're also just even more deeply misunderstanding the habits and the personal agency of a generation that is saying, yeah, you've got the right to speak into the microphone and I've got the right to switch it off. There is some of that. And I mean, I find that the generational stuff is used over and over again, which is also, I think, a bit lazy because it would be fine if I only ever met people who like my age who like you, James, are struggling with it all. But I live with, you know, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a two-year-old. You know, I don't, we don't live in these bubbles. All of us just are much more complicated. That's what Twitter does, is it does push you to sum up something that can't be summed up. And that's that's the danger. And I think that the left and on the whole has has been very damaged by Twitter because all the internal arguments have been out there in a way that um, I think has been useful to the right. Uh, Amber, you wanted to come in. 
Well, I'm just going to say that, um, Suzanne, um, you're right that it's a bit of a lazy and sweeping statement, but on those other elements that you talked about in in terms of uh, Brexit and political parties, there is generally a generation divide as well. It's not for everybody, but there there are strong signals there. But I do think that part of our argument in terms of what happens when you cancel, what happens when you get death threats and stuff... I, of course, am also familiar with that. Part of that is to do with the ratcheting up of technology, allowing people to create such sort of terrifyingly angry people who turn from just tweeting you, which is pretty nasty with some horrific stuff, to actually sending you letters, making phone calls, and sometimes turning up. And I think that the whole social media exchange of people's views can stir up anger and hatred much faster than we used to see. And that has consequences for people as well and leads to people not wanting to talk about it, like you described some of the people, you know, the people like nurses and doctors who just don't want to put their head above the parapet because they don't want to have people attacking them. And it's completely understandable. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Nimmo, can I just ask you, I just wonder whether you'd pick up on the point that Ash made about the Today program and journalism. And I'm worried that I am essentially like one of those people from the pre-industrial age about to be run over by a locomotive. I, I just can't sort of wrap my head around and making a big fuss around the the pace and scale of this. But actually for you, and perhaps the way you frame it is, you know, cancel culture is a form of protest, a form of expression that's as should be as open to you and should be as much of a right as the freedom of expression to stand on a platform and say what you think. I, this is a storm in a teacup. Ash kind of nailed it in terms of like the whole idea of like misappropriating words like internet culture words that, you know, for example, woke is one that I can't stand anymore that I used to use quite regularly and I can't use it anymore because of how often it hits headlines. And I I also want to say that like, if you want to, like if, if people want to engage in these conversations of what cancel culture is and where it came from and try to understand younger people who, you know, like me who grew up on the internet, then it, it isn't that difficult to try and to actually just go and find where these things came from. It's not that hard to 
really understand the nuances, but I feel like people don't want to. And I think that a lot of this discussion is so polarizing because the nuance and the the complexity and the greys aren't as grabby as the as the you know the headlines of it's the same as five years ago woke sjw campus warriors that you know they won't go away and they're taking our freedom of expression away and all that kind of stuff and it's kind of just the new version of that all right, all right. well i'm feeling uh, i'm feeling sort of more encouraged to step off the railway tracks and and watch the locomotive go by with a little bit of excitement i appreciate that by some kind of brilliant irony is that actually in about four or five minutes, Amber Rudd has to go. This is the opposite Amber of storming off stage and actually storming on stage. I know that you're about to have to go and uh, actually participate at an event at Cambridge University. So but before, you, before you do, though, because I, I want to talk in a moment to Ash and, and Suzanne about the extent to which something is happening inside the left. Right. But but I don't want to let the right get away with it. And I, and I think there's a tendency at the moment for the right to try and make hay out of the argument of cancel culture, you know, within government. And I'm not asking you to speak for or about the government. But, but you could look back into the not very distant past and see the right seeking to have a certain conformity, for example, around issues of immigration. And the result of that being whatever your point of view on the politics of Brexit, very problematic about the way in which immigration wasn't talked about then was talked about in British politics. And I wonder whether or not you reflect on versions of conformity, silencing, cancel culture within the right. I think there are advantages on the right where they take a position and hold it while the left feels much more divided on things like on on the trans issue, for instance, where Labour politicians during the last general election made a decision not to talk about it because it would just divide people and lose them votes. And the right just took a position and held it. On immigration, I can tell you that in my view, Labour politicians and Conservative politicians have struggled with finding what the right way is to have a, one would hope, empathetic, sympathetic, but but safe and secure immigration system, while also pleasing the public. The most right wing on immigration are the public. That's what needs to change. And that is a far, far bigger task than I would ever set my um, hand trying to do. Well, actually, I did a bit during the Brexit debate, but definitely lost it. The bigger issue is how we communicate with the public about immigration in a way that doesn't talk down to them, but is truthful, factual and fair. And I, I don't think anybody has really success, successfully done that. Uh, Amber, Rod, I know you've got to go, but thank you. Thanks for joining us. I, I want to have the conversation if I can within the left. Ash, can I ask you first, do you take the point that even if you accept, you, you know, the, the, the run of your argument, right, which is we, we've got to think about who is getting access to these discussions. We've got to think about power and hierarchy as well as, quote unquote, freedom of expression, that this is an, this is an issue that is, that is particular to the left and it, or, or particularly striking the left. And if so, why? Well, I mean, I think that there is a strategic question here, which is that the left does all of its disagreeing in public, um, whereas the right do it in private and enforce discipline in, you know, through all the dark arts of political management. And the left. Hang on, hang on a second. Did I just miss something? I thought the Conservative Party just tore itself apart in front of our very eyes for a decade over Europe. 
And one faction won. And the faction that won did it because they were, they were disciplined, they knew how to build a coalition, and they held the line. Your argument is the left has its public squabbles, has its squabbles in public, and the right somehow managed to do this in a discreet way out of sight. Even within the faction, right? So we're talking about, you know, even just like the left wing of the PLP. It's not as if they were always presenting a united front. They were fighting like rats in a sack. The, the left needs to sharpen up and, and realise how, how to present something that's public-facing and looks coherent. In terms of dealing with with freedom of speech, what I would actually say is rather than opposing freedom of speech and responsible use of platform, I believe in situating freedom of expression within a network of other rights. So you've got to think about the rights of others to live their lives in dignity and peace and safety. You've got to think about political expression, not just being a right to pop opinions into the ether, because that's not only what politics is, but the right to organize. So I think that what's kind of funny about how we have this conversation is that we we were just talked about immigration policy as if it was a matter of opinion. It's, it's not a matter of opinion. It's, it's a matter of, of, of how the state works and how institutions mm. function. And so how do you want to go about changing how those institutions function? Well, that's political organizing. But, but there is something really significant that's moving here, isn't there, which is that Historically, progressives, if you think back to the 60s and 70s, civil rights movements, these were enshrined in laws and rights. The real progress was A, the legislation, and then B, the implementation of those laws. And they, and the heart of them was the, the, the respect for those rights. It, the, the question I've got is whether or not something has moved in the balance of priorities on the left between rights, individual rights, particularly that individual right and freedom of expression, the right to say things that are unpopular, the right to say things that might even transgress or offend, versus the the the, the priority to stand up for the marginalised, to address the problems of the power gap. And, and there are trade-offs always. And what I'm asking really is whether or not you think a trade-off has happened. Well, you know, I think two big things happened, two really big things happened. Um, and this is why the left doesn't feel so comfortable talking about freedom of expression. And I think that's a mistake. I do think we really need to talk about freedom of expression. I think one thing that happened is that freedom of speech was kind of a bit of an American import and a way to sort of sanitize with reactionary opinions which had fallen out of favor. So if you say the reactionary thing, you go, ah, this is actually freedom of speech. It's again, winning the war of framing. And I think that that left a lot of people who are progressives or on the left a bit queasy about using this concept as if it had been Mm. sort of tainted. Um, And then the other thing that happened, I think, is because there emerged a discourse around thinking about things structurally and thinking about the ways in which structures speak through you is that it then became, I think, quite difficult to escape that and then think about pushing opinions forward, thinking about the dialectic, quite frankly, um, and how, how ideas develop and transform. And I think that there's a way out of this. Okay, good. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> What's the way out? When I look at how the parameters around freedom of speech are being set, it's in quite an unattractive way. So when I look at the free speech union or I look at somebody like Toby Young, there's a definition of freedom, which is basically the freedom to offend. What a level of cruelty must we allow in law? And of course, I think people should have a a, a right to say things which are offensive. But fundamentally, I don't want my freedom to be predicated on how much do I want to be a prick to people? Unless... There is a freedom to offend. 
that freedom is meaningless. No, I mean, what I'm you saying, can't. No, hold on, Ash. Hold on, hold on, Ash. You, you know, pass the mic a bit. You can't say, well, that freedom it nestles within a, uh, other rights without accepting that you're going to substantially curtail that right. And unfortunately, and I share your distaste for the way that free speech has been colonized by the right. But one of the reasons for that is that the left has left that terrain so vacant. You know, it is, it is the case that free speech underpins all other rights. This was the great insight of activists like Frederick Douglass, W.E. Dubois, Martin Luther King, Congressman John Lewis. You know, they understood that if you give away that right or you start to curtail it with reference to other rights too much, you will be giving away a right that you might need very much in future. You talk about framing the debate. What, what is often described as the fetish of free speech can be bloody handy if it is in, enshrined in some form. But, ha- but hang on, that was half of my point, right? Which is it's been sort of framed by kind of unattractive people in an unattractive way, but we can't let that be the end of it. Because I agree with you. I agree with you about the foundational nature of the freedom of speech and that I think that the foundational nature of freedom of speech being the core of other political rights um, is, is phenomenally important. But thinking about freedom in a way which I think, yes, is nestled within these other rights and is nestled with the rights of others to, to a dignified life. And so that doesn't mean, I think, necessarily that you get rid of the idea that sometimes what I'm going to say is going to offend people, because of course, of course it is. And that's important. The idea that, you know, men should be in relationships with men was once deeply offensive to people. And thank goodness that's generally changed. But thinking about how I think we express that freedom of speech as a freedom to care, to express our care, to express our love for some kind of collective, to express our love for individuals, to express our sincere belief in the in the betterment of human society, I think is, is a better way to get the left back on board than I think this relentless framing in negative terms. Given the story started with Suzanne Moore, I'm actually, if I might, give the the last word or the last the last conundrum that I've got here, Suzanne, which is in the end, I'm going to do exactly what you say we shouldn't do, which is d- distill a complicated world into a into a tweet. But I find myself thinking there are two really really ugly options here, and the choices between one or the other. One is your furious with cancel culture and you 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 do exactly what ash says you delegitimize your opponents and you frame the debate in a way that if you like silences them and what you do is you've found yourself unwittingly on the side of elite power every time it comes to you know making a fresh argument on the other hand you entirely give in to the idea that that, that everyone who's furious and everyone who's you know who's got an axe to grind comes to together and actually makes it impossible for us to hear the voices that we might not like, we might find offensive, we might even find transgress the things that we think are our values. But as a result of it, we have allowed mob justice to operate in the debate. And so I'm left with this choice between elite power and mob justice. And I don't like the look of either. And I wonder how you navigate that. Wow. A small question, James. I mean... I think in relation to the left, uh, much of what Ash said, I could I could relate to there. But the bits that I can't relate to are what I call, I guess, a kind of puritanical stance. Ever since I started writing, I know that I can write what I like in a right-wing 
newspaper in a way that I cannot in a left-wing newspaper. Now, why is that? What's that about? Is that about not offending people? Is the column that caused the fuss, is, is my saying that I think biological sex exists in itself a heresy? I think we've got to be a little bit less, less kind of fundamentalist about our own beliefs, because I think that's where we're at at the moment, or how it can see. When you're in, involved in these rows, there is simply good and evil, whereas for a lot of these issues, certainly for the trans one, there are a lot of people in the middle or people who simply want to ask questions who we don't hear from because they're frightened to speak. We should listen. It's a real cliche, but in the end, we have to listen. If you listen, if you get on a bus and just listen to people, you just hear the complexities of how people think. They just do not hit these tick boxes that we're expected to hit. So I think the left has to be much cleverer. We have to always kind of locate these arguments in place and history rather than have this, I'm woke. Woke came from black culture in 1942 and it was Martin Luther King who told us we must remain awake, you know, and that's all we can do, listen and remain awake. Okay, Suzanne, thank you. Actually, I should say genuinely thank you because I, I hope to go into this in an, in an honest spirit, which was, here's something that I'm uncomfortable with. I don't really know what I think. I had a curious experience last summer when that letter was published in Harper's and it was the, you know, you remember the letter, you know, sort of everyone was in it, Michael Ignatieff and Yasha Munk and J.K. Rowling and everyone. And they'd written this letter. And when I read through it, there was almost nothing in it that you could disagree with. And when I looked at the list of the lineup of the people, I was like, my God, it's like the Hall of Fame. And who am I to kind of pick a fight with Michael Ignatieff for not having thought through the principles of liberalism? I was like, okay. And yet when I got to the end of reading it, I felt deeply uncomfortable. Actually, you know, we started this conversation trying to come to the view that I think in could help you come to a clearer point of view. And for what it's worth, you have. So thank you. I, I will just summarize quickly what I, where I come out thinking about this. One is, I feel liberated not to be afraid of modernity. What Nimmo said, which is, you know, this is just, you know, I just grew up on the internet. This is what it is. Don't freak out. You know, it's helpful. I think, Ash, you know, your, your point about the extent to which journalists pathologize memes is really helpful. And I'll just want to be aware, aware of that. So that's one thing. Don't fear modernity. The second is, I, I can't get away from the thing, uh, you know, and I suppose this is addressed to you, Ash. I can't get away from the instinct that, that I have that when Matt makes the point about defending the freedom of speech when it's most uncomfortable is when it matters most, right, is that I'm inevitably going to be drawn to the arguments of institutional liberalism, the arguments that defend defend rights and when they're the when they're the most difficult to defend is when they're when they're the most needed and so i'm in, inevitably drawn to that i also think that there's a there's a sort of hysterical nature to this journalist talking about it in the context of the battle for truth this is a skirmish right this is not something that we need to get too worried about because we're not talking about cancellation we're talking about inhibition and we may be talking about displacement right particularly for people like us but i am very persuaded by suzanne's point which is the inhibition of people who don't necessarily have platforms, who don't have microphones or don't have columns. And that, I do think, is something that matters because it plays out in unexpected ways. But I suppose the fourth and final thing, which I least expected, is I actually come out of this conversation much more excited by 
quote-unquote cancel culture as itself a form of freedom of expression. I really do take your point, Ash, which is put the right of freedom of expression within the context of the right to organise, the right to protest. And if it is the case that in this last year we are both more aware of what technology can do and radicalised by what we've seen in the world, and this is a way of making those points, actually we should welcome that as part of the debate and not see it as the end of the debate. Suzanne Moore, thank you. Ash Sarkar, Matt Dancona, Nimo Omer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much Bye for having all me. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this thinking. And if you want to come to a thinking, if you want to take part in our efforts to understand and make the news, you can do that by becoming a member of Tortoise. You go to tortoisemedia.com, you sign up, and you can use my code, James50, to get 50% off. And when you do that, you can get all of our journalism, access to all of our podcasts and all of our reporting. And most importantly, you can come to the discussions that we hold at open news meetings, our thinkings. Please do. It would be great to see you and hear you help us make the news. Thank you for listening to The Battle for Truth. I'm James Harding. My producer is Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. And it's a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.